You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And finally, spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Tootsie, which came out in 1982. It was directed by Sidney Pollack. It stars Dustin Hoffman, Jessica Lange, Terry Garr, Dabney Coleman, Charles Durning, Sidney Pollack, Gina Davis, Lynn Thigpen, George Gaines, and Bill Murray. The genre would be identity comedy. I got a soap, George. I'm the new woman in the on Southwest Jingle. I'd like to make her look a little more attractive. How far can you pull back? How do you feel about Cleveland? Hi. Hi. It is just for the money, isn't it? It all sounds to me as one of the great acting challenges an actor could have. You are the first woman character who is her own person. I am Dorothy. Dorothy is me. Nobody's writing that part. It's coming out of me. You are Michael. You're acting, Dorothy. It's the same thing. There's a woman in me. You're a breakthrough lady for us. We're picking up your option. You'll be with us another year. I signed a contract, but I didn't know I was going to be working for the rest of my life as a woman. This is a nightmare. I want you. Don't you find being a woman is complicated? Extremely. Mom? In anticipation of recently seeing the stage musical version of this story with my mother, I thought it'd be fun to revisit one of the best comedies of the 1980s. Or any decade, really. And, believe it or not, it's still among the elite for so many different reasons. But mainly its screenplay and its cast. Now, given what we now know about Dustin Hoffman, his performance fits this pretty well. And I'm sure that was not by accident. Hoffman, in collaboration with Pollock and the writers, was apparently riffing on his uber-jittery, ultra-method, and hyper-horn-dog persona. And they really don't hold back, at least from a PG standpoint. You see it during that opening surprise party sequence. Hoffman's Michael Dorsey is just a whirling dervish of insecurity, laying lines on different women, often within earshot of each other. Utterly shameless to the point where he actually hugs one of them after some quick banter, muttering, Thank you for liking me. As we see her rolling her eyes, and then an hour later, we see her leaving the party with someone else. Pollock just crams so much character introduction into that first 15 minutes, it's quite impressive. We also see a credits montage of Dorsey failing audition after audition, often by talking defiantly over each director. When he's not running his own amateur acting class, berating other struggling actors about how they need to keep working. Hmm. And this opening act culminates with Dorsey having a rough ad hoc meeting with his agent George, played to asset perfection by Sidney Pollack, leading to this illuminating exchange. Are you saying that nobody in New York will work with me? Oh no, that's too limiting. Nobody in Hollywood wants to work with you either. I can't even send you up for a commercial. You play the tomato for 30 seconds, they want a half a day over schedule because you wouldn't sit down. Yes, it wasn't logical. You were a tomato! A tomato doesn't have logic! A tomato can't move! That's what I said! So if he can't move, how's he gonna sit down, George? I was a stand-up tomato! A juicy, sexy, beefsteak tomato! Nobody does vegetables like me! I did an evening of vegetables off-Broadway! I did the best tomato! The best Look, cucumber! I, I did wanna... an endive salad that knocked the critics on their ass! Michael, I, I'm trying to stay calm here. You uh, are a wonderful actor. Thank you. But you're too much trouble. Get some therapy. So needless to say, it's established off the bat just how desperate Dorsey is as a character. 
and we're witnessing a truly entertaining high-wire comedic performance from Hoffman. And he hasn't even put on the dress yet. And by this point, we have already seen stellar supporting work from Terry Garr. Well, good night, Michael. It was a wonderful party. My date left with someone else. I had a lot of fun. Do you have any second off? Come on, I'll take you home. She's playing Sandy, his even more insecure aspiring actress slash would-be girlfriend. And we've also seen droll perfection from Bill Murray as Jeff, his playwright roommate. And if we're being honest, might as well just be named Bankman. I don't want a full house at the Winter Garden Theater. I want 90 people who just came out of the worst rainstorm in the city's history. These are people who are alive on the planet until they dry off. I wish I had a theater that was only open when it rained. Yeah, this was about 18 months before Ghostbusters first came out, but Murray is clearly in his quippy, anti-establishment zone here. With just Michael Dorsey and these three other supporting characters, you already have a launching point for a great showbiz-slash-backstage comedy. But wait, there's more. Of course, we then see Dustin Hoffman's convincing transformation into Dorothy Michaels as she auditions for a soap opera with 80s uber jerk and one of my personal favorites, Dabney Coleman playing Ron. Honey, I'm sure that you're a very, very good actress. It's just that you're a little bit too soft and genteel. You're not threatening enough. Not threatening enough? How's this? You take your hands off me or I'm going to knee your balls right through the roof of your mouth. Is that enough of a threat? To start? Yes, I think I know what y'all really want. You want some gross caricature of a woman to prove some idiotic point like, like power makes women masculine or masculine women are ugly. Shame on you, you macho shithead. Jesus. What is idiotic about power making a woman masculine? Not that that was my point. I... The misogynistic director, who also happens to be dating another actress, Julie, who is played luminously by Jessica Lange, who would go on to win an Oscar for her performance, and sadly the only Oscar that this film would win out of 10 nominations. But this was also the year of E.T. and Gandhi, of course, so they kind of cleaned up the categories. Jessica Lange is fantastic, playing a borderline alcoholic popular TV actress slash single mom who becomes close friends with Dorothy, clearly unaware that she's actually Michael. Why not? Why shouldn't you influence me? Listen, you wouldn't compromise your feelings like I have. You wouldn't live this kind of lie, would you? She's biting but soft-spoken, and it becomes fairly obvious how Michael secretly falls in love with her. Julie actually ends up becoming the true heart of this movie, and the relationship that develops between them, while a bit problematic in retrospect, it's still quite sweet. And the plot thickens even further as Dorothy is invited to Sandy's old childhood home where her widower father, played by the late, great Charles Durning, starts to fall in love with Dorothy. <laughs> yeah. And all of this leads to a final screwball 40-plus minutes, which is just a true masterclass in building comedy towards both a suspenseful and absurd climax. Seriously, major props to Pollock and Gelbart for crafting several banger scenes in succession. We see Dorothy struggling to calm down Sandy's baby to the point where he just kind of gives up and starts talking in his regular man voice out of exasperation. We see Michael haplessly try to explain the situation to his agent. I mean, if I didn't love Julie before, you should have seen a look on her face when she thought I was a lesbian. Lesbian? You just said gay. No, 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 no. Sandy thinks I'm gay. Julie thinks I'm a lesbian. I thought Dorothy was supposed to be straight. Dorothy is straight. Les, the sweetest, nicest man in the world, and I asked me to marry him. A guy named Les wants you to marry him? Yeah, no, not Matt. No, wants to marry Dorothy. Does he know she's a lesbian? Dorothy's not a lesbian. I know that, but does he know that? Know what? That, well, I don't, I don't know. You know, he gave me a ring. He gave me a diamond ring. I, what did you say? What do you mean what I said? I said, I, I, I got to think it over. 
I went in the ladies' room. I almost pissed in the sink. I'm in trouble, man. We see Michael fend off a creepy co-star, John, played by George Gaines, singing outside of her window, leading to the film's best line. Murray's Jeff declaring to Michael after a lengthy pause, You slut. There are just no shortage of gems throughout, including a batshit live TV monologue by Dorothy slash Michael, which pretty much ties it all up together. I mean, seriously, how did this film not win a screenplay Oscar? It's crazy. Everybody brings their A-game to the proceedings, and along the way, we actually witness a convincing arc for Hoffman's protagonist, relating to not only his learning more about selflessness and friendship, but also misogyny, jealousy, and empathy. Now, true, all of these seem pretty much like surface-level lessons along the way, but at the center of it all is a very engaging three-dimensional performance highlighting two distinct characters. His Dorothy Michaels becomes much more than just a cross-dressing gag. She becomes an avenue for him to discover the best version of himself, as we even see him awkwardly explain to Lang's Julie in the film's final scene. I miss Dorothy. You don't have to. She's right here. And she misses you. Look, you don't know me from Adam. But I was a better man with you as a woman than I ever was with a woman as a man. You know what I mean? Now, do I completely buy the ending of this movie? Well, I'm not really sure, as Michael does not seem to really suffer any consequences for his massive deception. But no matter, it's sweet, it's touching, and we get to hear the lovely It Might Be You from Stephen Bishop playing over a touching image of Julie and Michael walking through the streets of Crowder, Manhattan. And now this takes me to the categories, which will be in slightly off order, but we'll get to why. The first category is Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. This film is near perfection. There is so much talent involved rising to the occasion that I can't actually cite any which was wasted. However, there were several uncredited writers who ended up working on this film and contributing a great deal. I'll get to them in just a bit. Now, I'm actually going to combine the next two categories, and for a good reason. You'll see why. That'll be the best needle drop, which is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music's essential to film. And the trailer moment, the scene or moments that best describe this movie. Now, it's tempting for me to just block out that final 40 minutes of screwball comedy, but honestly, that would just encompass too many scenes. However, there are other highlights abound throughout this film, and if I had to narrow it down to two, I would likely just choose two different montages, which also happen to feature catchy music sung by Stephen Bishop, thereby linking these two categories, trailer moment and needle drop. The first one occurs about halfway through the movie, and it's one of my favorite 80s tropes, the triumph montage. Yes, this was one of those cinematic highlights of the go-go 80s, featured in many a movie, including Wall Street, Rocky Three, The Secret of My Success, Revenge of the Nerds, and probably the montage which this particular one most compares to, Ghostbusters, in that this one also takes place around New York, with nods towards national media, including magazine covers, and the song we hear is also the title of the movie. Now basically, we're witnessing Dorothy Michaels taking the world by storm as a TV sensation highlighting every magazine cover from Women's Day to TV Guide to Ms. Magazine to People to that patriotic cover of New York Magazine, which has Dorothy clad in red sequins saluting in front of an American flag. Yeah, this would actually end up being used in much of the marketing for the movie as well. Truly fun stuff. Now, the song that we hear playing over this, which is called Tootsie, 
Well, let's just say that I cannot imagine any scenario where even the biggest fans of this movie, myself included, are listening to Spotify, working out, cruising, doing something else, whatever, and thinking, hey, let's pop on that Tootsie song. Because objectively, it's not a very good song, nor a very memorable song. It's mainly just forgettable 80s middle-of-the-road pop with clunky lyrics. But in the context of how it's used in the movie, it works perfectly with this montage. I don't know, just hearing the bouncy synth and constant singing of the word Tootsie while we see our protagonist doing all these glamour poses in front of the camera, it's just rousing and funny. The song Tootsie in this movie is just a shining example of the fact that you don't always need to have a truly good song to provide a truly effective needle drop. Now, as for the other Stephen Bishop song, which I mentioned earlier, it's actually quite a sweet, charming ballad which I can listen to independently. Hell, I even found myself humming this while writing this review. The song is, of course, called It Might Be You. And not only is it the main love theme for this movie, but I'm fairly convinced that the developing romance between Dorothy and Julie would not land nearly as well without this song playing. Even David Grusin's bouncy score references this song during a critical moment. And this leads me to that other trailer moment, which is when we first hear the song. As I referenced earlier, Julie invites Dorothy to come with her to her childhood home for the holidays, which is a farm-slash-ranch run by Durnings Less, playing Julie's father. And as soon as we get there, this kicks off a lovely montage of Dorothy not only bonding further with Julie, but with Less. We see her helping out on the farm, then preparing meals together, playing with Julie's baby, and in a critical moment, we see Dorothy watching Julie riding her horse in the distance. It's shot soft focus, the camera cuts to Dorothy's face, and in case it wasn't obvious already, it is now extremely clear that Dorothy has fallen in love with her. All the while, we're hearing this wistful song. It's a true character-building montage matched with the perfect music to pull it off. I've been passing time Watching trains go by All of my life Lying on the sand Watching seabirds fly Wishing there would be Someone waiting home for me Something's telling me And now the final category, which would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Now, this was a genuinely difficult choice for me. I so wanted to choose Dustin Hoffman for all the obvious reasons. He clearly put so much personal stuff into this performance, which makes it all the more authentic. It's a stellar performance, which was absolutely robbed of an Oscar. And he's in every scene, and it just never feels less than engaging and funny. 
And yet, I can't choose him because, sorry, this film is an assemblage of many different parts, including a very extensive cast who all come to play, and apparently several rewrites during a troubled production which had to occur during filming to make all this work as a cohesive story. It ended up being quite the undertaking for Pollock and Gelbart to piece all this together, along with several other top-flight screenwriters who stepped in to make key contributions, including famed comedy writer Elaine May, who apparently rewrote much of the dialogue for Julie, collaborating with Jessica Lange during filming. And beyond May, you also had future Oscar winner Barry Levinson and Mary Scheiskel. With the exception of Levinson, everyone else involved was a seasoned writer. Even beyond that screwball final 40 minutes, the writing of this film is just a true marvel as pretty much every distinct character gets at least one good exchange without it ever feeling showy. Everyone is given depth, including the main villain. The main protagonist has a compelling arc, there's significant emotional payoff at the end, and it's never not funny. And of course, we cannot forget Pollock, who led the charge on a 116-minute-long comedy, which never lags. As the director, he just makes so many smart choices throughout, juggling so many different characters, yet always keeping the main focus on Dorothy slash Michael's story. For leading the charge and collaborating on this true gem of a comedy with heart, Sidney Pollock, Larry Gelbart, Elaine May, Murray Scheisgall, and Barry Levinson are your co-MVPs. Edward Kimberly. I'm not mentally ill, but proud and lucky and strong enough to be the woman that was the best part of my manhood. The best part of myself. That is one nutty hospital. I knew there was a reason she didn't like me. Commercial. Cut it. And cut. My rating for Tootsie would be five stars out of five. Happy 40th anniversary to one of the greatest comedies of all time. For me, I know it's definitely in my top five, and it's possibly the best of the 1980s. And if you're looking to watch Tootsie, it's currently streaming on Paramount+. And that ends another Breakthrough Lady review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.